There we go. Today's actually the, uh, the last Sunday that we'll be in John before taking a little bit of a break. Uh, for the next few weeks, we'll be doing some standalone sermons, uh, bringing in at least one guest preacher, and then we'll return to the book of John around like February 20th uh, or so. So that's kind of where we're going over the next month. Uh, but today we'll be reading in the book of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. And uh, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, somewhere in one of the seats in front of you. Uh, feel free to take that. If you need a Bible, take it home. That's, uh, that's our gift to you. So John 10, starting in verse 22, reads as follows. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So please join me in prayer this morning. God in heaven, I thank you for uh, the goodness of the Father, the, the willingness of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. While our minds may not be able to fully explain how that all works together, uh, we pray for your help this morning to give us more light as we discuss this text. We ask that you would help us trust in the work that you have done on our behalf, saving us from sins, giving us truth, showing us how to live, Lord. We are thankful for all of this and more. And we pray for more and more of your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There's a phrase that's used often in our culture that's really just used as an insult when someone is thought to be acting foolishly or someone is being naive. Uh, The phrase is, don't be a sheep. 
uh, don't be a sheep. Unfortunately, uh, it is a phrase used somewhat frequently, um, especially by more like fanatical social revolutionaries. Uh, Usually it's directed against people that are thought to be ignorant, those who are following something or someone blindly, uh, someone who's not thinking for themselves is usually that's where it's directed at. And sheep aren't known for being especially smart. Uh, So when you tell someone to not be a sheep, uh, it really just is uh, a further insult. And it's almost like saying, hey, think for yourself, right? Don't take people's word for it. If you can't see it with your own eyes, if you haven't personally validated something, you shouldn't believe it, right? It's common even in in normal uh, day-to-day interactions with someone, someone, a coworker maybe, uh, who says something like extraordinary happened this weekend. You're like, yeah, I don't. Uh, like, show me some pictures, show me a video, like, otherwise I'm not going to believe it. Uh, because only sheep would believe something that ridiculous without having proof for it. And as we begin to work our way through the text this morning in John's gospel, we're going to see a similar insistence from some people who are adamant that they see proof when someone is claiming something extraordinary. And for some people in the text, the claim may be so large that they don't think that any proof is good enough. And it's these questions of truth and of evidence and of reliability. These are themes that are going to run through our text this morning and will inform our conversation. So let's jump into the text and and see what's going on. Uh, We've seen previously in the Gospel of John that he often uses locations and events as transition points uh, in his work. And it's pretty common for each of those transition points to kind of have something to do with what's going on. Like, it's not just useless background information. Uh, we kind of saw a couple weeks ago in John 6, where uh, it's like, oh, they're celebrating the Passover, and just like slides that in. And then later you have the miracle of the loaves. And if you're, if you're paying attention, you should be thinking like, oh, wait, God provided food in the loaves, just like in the Passover when God provided for his people. And there's that thing in the wilderness, like you see how There are like multiple layers to what John is doing. We see something similar here in chapter 10 in verse 22. The text tells us that the feast of dedication is going on. And then verse 23 confirms that with saying, hey, it's wintertime. And I would encourage you, like anytime you see something in the Bible that seems like an insignificant detail, just like take a minute, slow down, ask like, why is John telling us that? Like, what is it about the Feast of Dedication? Why is he telling us it's winter? Because biblical authors have really good reasons for adding in those little details. And you can be sure that usually the thing you don't understand or the thing that you're, you don't quite know why it's there is often really important. <clears throat> and we'll see that shortly. So Jesus is here in the temple. People come up and start asking him questions. So I'll set the stage here uh, with just talking about like this thing that's the Feast of Dedication. Like, what, what is that? Well, it goes by a few other names that might be more recognizable to us in America. Uh, Instead of the Feast of Dedication, we in 21st century America often call it Hanukkah. This is the Jewish holiday period that normally happens around our Christmas time. Uh, Sometimes it goes by the name the Festival of Lights because of the menorah, you know, that candlestick-looking thing um, that takes the center stage. And for those unfamiliar with what uh, Hanukkah entails, it's essentially an eight-day feast. And the earliest roots of this holiday go back to about 164 BC. And it's during a period of time that we as Christians call the intertestamental period. 
And that's just a long, fancy word for saying it happened between the two Testaments. So it's a time period after the Old Testament closes, but before the New Testament begins. It's inter, it's between the two Testaments. And this period historically has, uh, is marked by a significant amount of unrest and difficulty and war for the Jewish people. And by the year 164 BC, uh, that's the year that this festival will, will start, we're told that there's an ungodly, there's a wicked ruler from Syria named Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, he begins conquering more and more areas in and around the Middle East. And Antiochus Epiphanes comes against Israel, comes against the Jewish people, and temporarily prevails against them militarily. Uh, He sacks Jerusalem, he overruns the temple. Uh, The details of this military encounter are told to us in a book called 1 Maccabees. And uh, we don't believe that 1 Maccabees is scripture, but it still has a lot of good historical information that we can rely on. And uh, it's a reliable source for this particular case. And the book of 1 Maccabees outlines a number of atrocities that happened to the Jewish people during this time period that lead up to the Feast of Dedication. So Antiochus takes over the city and begins completely uprooting uh, the religious system in the temple. Uh, And keep in mind that this is a time where like the entire spiritual identity of Israel is wrapped up in the temple. If the temple falls it means God has rejected his people, right? We see that in the Babylonian captivity, but this is after the Babylonian captivity, after the people have returned, but about uh, 160 years before Jesus comes. So it's a big deal when the temple gets taken down, but it gets a lot worse from there. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, then desecrates the Holy Jewish Temple by shedding innocent blood. He starts killing people inside the temple, so we know that's bad. Uh, He even forces many people to abandon the true worship of God and begin worshiping Greek gods like Zeus, and all the while doing this inside of the temple. But the single greatest act of defilement comes when Antiochus uh, Epiphanes um, comes in with an unclean animal, a pig, and sacrifices the pig on the Jewish altar as a sacrifice to Zeus. So being an unclean animal to the Jews, like this is seen as like just a sinful violation that that can't be remedied. Um, And the desecration of the temple and of the altar by these ungodly Gentiles was so bad that later on the Jews are able to take back the temple and they actually tear the altar down completely and they build an entire new one because they're like, that one's too defiled. We can't worship God with that. It's too far gone. Many people believe that this is the event, right? The, the defilement of the temple we, that I think is prophesied by the Old Testament prophet Daniel, where he talks about this abomination of desolation that's going to occur in the temple. Most people think this is it, that that's what he was uh, prophesying about in the future. Anyway, the Jews are able to fight back and, against Antiochus Epiphanes, and they're able to take back the temple. And as they rededicate the temple, for the purpose of true worship to the true God, right, not to Zeus, they mark this rededication with an eight-day festival known as the Feast of Dedication. And they call it the Feast of Dedication because they are rededicating the temple. And every year after that, the Jews would re-celebrate the Feast of Dedication as a way of remembering the way that God delivered them and a way to remind them of the true worship that God required. It was a time to set apart yourself to the work of God, a time of cleansing, a time of remembrance. 
So that's what's being celebrated in this passage in John 10. It's the time in Israel's history where God kicks out the pagans, right, and restores true worship. And the time where he removed those keeping his people in bondage and restored reverence and obedience to the faith, I mean, no doubt, as people are celebrating this during the time of Jesus, they'd be thinking of a future date where God would kick out the pagan Romans that currently had them in captivity, and that God would restore his people and would bring back true worship. And it's within this context that today's story takes place. And as John tells us that it's, that it's winter, I think he's also, like, not just describing the time, I think he's also foreshadowing the type of reception that he's about to receive from the Jews, a cold welcome, one filled with cynicism, one filled with distrust, one filled with hostility. And the narrative begins with the Jews gathering around him and asking him questions. And we've seen elsewhere in John's gospel how the phrase the Jews can mean a couple things. It can sometimes refer to the people as a whole, or sometimes it can refer to just the Jewish leaders. I think given what we saw from last week's message, it's likely that this is referring to just the Jewish leaders. And so these leaders come in and they say like, hey, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And you can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice when he says in verse 25, look, I've already told you, and you still don't believe. Like, what's going to happen if I tell you again? Are you suddenly going to believe me because I tell you the same information? It's very much like the blind man that J.D. talked about last week. They just keep asking the same question. And even the blind guy's like, look, I've already told you what happened. Is me telling it to you again going to do anything different? It's the same thing. And this brings us to today's first point. If you're a note taker, uh, the first point is that the mind will not accept what the heart rejects. The mind will not accept what the heart rejects. In other words, we only believe what we want to believe. Humans have a problem with like being persuaded of truth. And you can kind of see this just like current political divide. You'll see groups of people who continuously just become more and more divided. And one of the reasons for that is people on the political left and people on the political right surround themselves with people who already agree with them. And because of this, they only will listen to what they already believe to be true. And it's much the same here with the Jews. They, they have already decided what is true. They've already decided what they're going to believe. They've already decided to reject Jesus. And yet they keep asking him to explain himself, to prove who he is, to show them some evidence. But no amount of evidence is going to persuade them. They think he's trying to deceive them, but then Jesus responds in verse 25. He said, I've already told you plainly. I've explained everything, but you still don't believe. You won't listen to my words. You won't even listen to my signs. By this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has uh, healed a blind man. He's turned water into wine. He's healed the guy who's been lame from birth. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on the water, and yet people will still not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And why is that? In part, it's because there is spiritual blindness at work. Verse 26 tells us, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. 
These people are unable to see the truth because they are not one of his sheep. And while we absolutely have a responsibility to respond in faith when we come to God, we must not forget that God's work always comes before our work. Verse 26 almost seems backwards to us, doesn't it? Like, we would think it should say, you don't believe me, you don't believe, and because you don't believe, you're not one of my sheep. But it doesn't say that. The order is flipped. It says in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. Belief comes after God has already begun working in us. So that God gets the glory and salvation, not, in, not us. Our eyes are blinded until he makes us see. And so we need God to work in us so that we will then be able to work for God. And this brings us to point number two. God's true sheep will follow his voice. God's true sheep will follow his voice. Jesus continues speaking in verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to share a personal story with you that relates to this passage, and I want to share it not only because it's part of my testimony, uh, but also because I want to show you how sometimes well-meaning people um, can sometimes hurt us. Uh, When I was in my senior year of high school, uh, I was I was facing just like a lot of emotional stress because I was kind of getting to the end of my senior year in high school, and I had no idea what I was going to do when I grow up. And uh, it didn't help that people just kept asking, "Hey, man, what are you going to do when you graduate?" I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and it uh, it was hard. And like the more I prayed about it, and the more I tried to figure it out, uh, the less certain I became of what I was actually supposed to do. So I just, the anxiety and worry, like worry, I just kept compounding over the decision. So I finally went and asked uh, one of my pastors for help, uh, told him about all the uncertainty, uh, and then he gave me some some counsel. And I grew up in a much different church than like what Pillar Jacksonville is. Uh, It was a church, and I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong, just helping you set the stage. Uh, There was a much stronger emphasis in like the active leading of the Holy Spirit like a much stronger emphasis on things like, you know, you're going to see the miraculous signs, you're going to be able to hear the audible voice of God. And so as I was talking to my pastor about this indecision, uh, he tried to assure me that I didn't need to worry about the future because I would receive guidance from God on what to do. He then quoted John 10, and he said, look, the Bible says that God's sheep hear his voice. And if you are one of his sheep, then you'll hear God's voice too. If you hear his voice, then God's going to tell you what to do. He's going to tell you where to go. And that may sound like good advice at first, uh, but there's a problem here. Because despite my praying, I never did hear the voice of God. And you can probably see how this quickly develops into a crisis. Because after all, if God's sheep hear his voice, what does it mean if I don't hear God's voice? What does it mean if God doesn't give me direction on what to do in my life? Maybe, maybe it means that I'm not one of his sheep. Maybe it means that I'm not a Christian. And those are some of the thoughts I start to have. I began to doubt if I was really a believer. 
Now, I will say, this pastor was a, was a godly man and one to this day whose character I deeply respect. Uh, but I can say for certain that his advice on this matter uh, was harmful for me spiritually. And his understanding of this passage was incorrect. This passage is not talking about people literally hearing the voice of God. This passage is not about decision-making in the sense of, should I take this job or that job? Should I go to this school or that school? Jesus here is speaking in metaphors, and it even tells us that in the text. If you look back in verse 6 of chapter 10, it says, He began talking to them in figures of speech. My sheep hearing my voice is just a figure of speech, an expression, meaning that those whom Jesus has called will respond to him. He's talking primarily about salvation and obedience, not about decision-making and guidance. And you can see that clearly if you look at verses 27 through 28. It says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So that means it's okay if you're sitting in this room and you've never heard the audible voice of God. I believe God does still speak in those ways. Uh, I don't believe that happens for everyone, but God can do whatever he wants. If he wants to talk to you audibly, absolutely, he can, he can and will do that. So I've never heard the audible voice of God, and yet I'm still a Christian. This passage is about the eternal security of those who are in Christ. They have been brought to Christ because the Father has been drawing them. Now, I, I will admit there is some element of like decision-making involved here, but it's like it's broader in the scope of just general obedience. I think the question you should be asking yourselves is, am I following the voice of the shepherd? If we are meant to follow the shepherd, are we doing what is required to get closer? Uh, we mentioned it, uh, JD mentioned it last week as well, and I would encourage you to go onto YouTube and just check out some of these videos. But uh, if you've never seen like videos or seen it in real life of a shepherd calling his sheep, it is some wild stuff. Like, there are some crazy things that happen. I'll give you one or two examples. There's one video where I saw where, like, a shepherd is standing out in a field, and the field is completely covered in fog. Like, you can only see, like, the shepherd, and you can't see, like, anything else. Um, but the shepherd starts calling the sheep. And at first, you don't hear anything. And he, like, keeps calling the sheep. And then, like, in the, in the back of the video, you're, you, all you hear is, like, that, you know, like, the really faint... Uh, and then the shepherd just like keeps calling, keeps calling. And then there are like more sheep noises in the background and the shepherd keeps calling. And then like breaking through the fog is like this entire herd of sheep just like running towards the shepherd. And they couldn't even see the shepherd at first, but they just know his voice when he calls. And they don't know where he is, but it's like, hey, he's somewhere in this direction. And what a great analogy for the life of a Christian. It's like, am I going towards the voice of the shepherd? Notice that this passage says the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. So there are two elements then that we see from verse 27 about following Jesus. There's knowing him and there's obeying him. And this pattern is used throughout scripture. My favorite spot for it uh, is in Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 where it says, hey, you should present your bodies as a holy and living sacrifice to God. So that's obedience, right? You should follow him. But then in verse 2, it says, but you have to first start by renewing your mind so that you know what God's will is. So you see that same pattern here. Know God's will and then live a holy life. Just like here in John, hear his voice, 
meaning know his will and his word, and then live a holy life, follow Jesus. And if you don't know if something is right, you can just ask yourself this question. The thing that I'm about to do, will this get me closer to Jesus? Or will it make me feel more distant? Will this thing or this job opportunity or whatever, will this help me get closer to the shepherd and follow him? Does it sound like something Jesus would be asking me to do? A number of years ago, I took some flack at work uh, because I, I didn't watch the show Game of Thrones. Not only did I not watch it, I was kind of like, no, I'm not going to watch it. Like, you can't make me uh, kind of thing. And, uh, and I'm not con- condemning anyone who has seen it. I'm just saying that for, that, for me, that was an issue of conscience. Um, I've heard the storyline's great, high-quality production, etc. But, you know, I'd, I'd heard enough about just like the, the rampant nudity and like sex scenes and things like that. And my conscience wouldn't allow me to, to watch it. Because I knew that those things were going to hinder my walk with God. And so I, w- I was willing to just let them go. Um, I've been working with some, some friends uh, and family recently um, and some folks who've been uh, caught um, just in a cycle of you know, viewing pornography and things like that. And it's just, it's difficult. And I know it, it always starts with just like a, you know, a small combination of choices. And I was having a phone conversation yesterday with these men and we were discussing 1 Peter 2.11 about how uh, these things, these, these lusts of the flesh, actually wage war against our souls. Like there's something about sex that is unique and how it corrupts us. And when I was looking at that and talking to my friends about the show, Game of Thrones, I'm like, you know, I just, my conscience can't do it. And it came back to this issue. I don't think I would have phrased it like this then, but I, I would phrase it like it now. It's like, I It's just not getting me closer to the shepherd. It's not bringing me closer to the voice of Jesus. So I passed up on something. And and years later, I I still don't regret that decision. And so I would ask you, uh, what is it in your life that is preventing you from walking closer to Jesus? Is Is it anger? Is it greed? Is it jealousy? Is it misplaced priorities? Is it using too much of your time on something that doesn't matter? What is preventing you from hearing his voice and from walking more closely with him? You can be sure that the choices you make have a direct impact on how strongly your walk with Christ is. And if you're sitting here today and you say like, yes, but I've, I've, gone, I've gone too far. Like there's no, there's no hope for me to come back. I would encourage you with this and say, thankfully, your spiritual life is not ultimately in your hands. Because if it were, I think all of us would have thrown it away into the gutter by now, including myself. And I would encourage you with this, and this is point number three. God's grip on your life is stronger than your own. God's grip on your life is stronger than your own. And it is here that we see the wonderful mystery of how God's power and sovereignty work alongside of our choices. Verse 29 tells us that God is working and no one will take the sheep out of his hand. And yet we are confronted with a reality that our choices still matter. We must choose to follow the shepherd. In our choices, God is still is working somehow his perfect plan. You can't say like, oh, well, I guess God didn't choose me, so I'll just keep on sinning. No, Corinthians tells us that every one of us will answer to God for the deeds done in the body. It says, whether good or evil. But balanced with this is the reality that our actions will never 
mess things up so bad that they invalidate God's plan. God's plan is still going to be reached. His purposes will prevail. There is nothing you can do that are going to change his purpose. But I will say that we will all fulfill God's purposes. And the question is whether you're going to fulfill God's purposes by being faithful like Peter or by being unfaithful like Judas. But one way or another, God's purposes will prevail. But you get to choose the part that you're going to play. As Jesus continues his narrative, he moves on and makes one of the most incredible claims in all of the Gospels. Uh, If you look in verse 30, it says that he and the Father are one. And this brings us to point number four for the morning. I've got five. uh, Sorry, I forgot to say that at the beginning. Five total. This is point number four. Uh, Point number four is that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are one. And you can see how outrageous this claim is to his audience because immediately in verse 31, the text tells us that the Jews seek to stone him to death because of it. If this claim isn't true, it's the height of blasphemy because then he's equating himself with God. If it is true, it means something different, but we've already said that they were willing to reject its truth. So what does it mean to be one with God? I think there are two good ways you can think about that phrase. The first way is like a sense of identity, and the second way is like a sense of work. Um, In the sense of identity, it's saying that Jesus and God the Father are united, and there's a sense in which they are equal. Now, we do believe that Jesus, when he came to earth, gave up certain privileges of his divinity, right? Philippians tells us he emptied himself, he took on the form of a servant, So in saying that the Father and Jesus are one, Jesus is saying that they are both God. And any traits associated with the essence of God would be true of both the Father and of Jesus, the Son. But then there's that second sense that we talk about, okay, what does being one mean? And that's in the sense of work. And that when Jesus says he and the Father are one, he means that the work that the Father is doing is the same work that the Son is doing. There's no division between them. They never work against each other, like the Father's doing one thing and the Son's doing another. They're never out of sync. They're perfectly unified in the ministry and work that's being carried out. They may have different roles in how that work gets accomplished, but there's no agreement or disagreement in how the work is is actually the, the thing to be done. And this is actually a really important idea because church history has like shown us that there are multiple heresies that have arisen uh, where people try to divide the work between the Father and the Son too much. Uh, there was this guy named Marcion once who uh, went so far as to say that Jesus and the Father were actually two separate gods. They were doing two separate things. Because he would look, and he would look in the Old Testament, and he would say, oh, The God of the Old Testament is super judgmental, and the God of the New Testament seems so super loving. And so these must be just like two different gods we're talking about. He said the Father was the one in the Old Testament full of judgment, but then Jesus shows up and he's full of mercy. These must be two separate gods. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Old Testament, some people think, is just full full of judgment, but it's actually filled with constant cases of mercy of God's patience, of God's grace. And even in the New Testament, there are plenty of times uh, of God executing judgment on people. These are not two gods. 
This is one God, and in the one God, we see three persons. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of these three are perfectly united in a work, perfectly bringing about the same end. And if you're looking for like a summary of what that work looks like or of the character of God, of who he is, I would encourage you to look in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 give an amazing summary of God and his character. It says that the one God is a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sounds like a lot of mercy. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Right? So God is perfectly merciful. He's also perfectly just. Like from the beginning, right, in, in the Exodus, we see God saying this about himself. I'm perfectly merciful. I'm perfectly just. And both the work of the Father and the work of the Son show that to be true. It is God's glory that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working to bring about. So as we get back to Jesus in John 10, as he defends himself before the people who are trying to kill him, he asks them a question and he says, hey, for what work are you trying to kill me? Right? We talked about it. I've opened the eyes of the blind. I've fed the 5,000. I've cured a man who couldn't walk since being born. Why would you kill me for doing those things? And they say, well, we're not killing you because of those things. We're killing you or want to kill you because you make yourself equal with God. And I think this is actually like the second or third time in the book of John where they've tried to kill him for making some claim about being equal with the Father. But then Jesus gives this really clever response as he quotes Psalm 82. And I'll, I'll read what Psalm 82, 6 says. Uh, the psalmist writes, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So there's this phrase in which God is calling some entity or somebody gods. And there's some debate on like what that psalm is talking about. Some people think that uh, he's talking to angels when he says sons of the most high. Some people think that like God is uh, mocking earthly rulers who have become corrupt. Like you've gotten so drunk on your power, you think you're a god. So I'm going to like mockingly call you gods. But just remember, you're human, you're going to die one day, like that type of thing. So the reference to gods uh, could be just a mocking description of earthly rulers. But whether the psalm is talking about angels or about earthly rulers, the actual interpretation is not that important for the point Jesus is trying to make. Because his argument is this, hey, Jewish leaders, you say that it is immoral for anyone but the Father to be called God. However, the Father calls other people in the scriptures, he calls them gods. So if the scripture can't be broken, if God's word is true, then it must be okay for some entities at some time to be called gods. And if it were, if it were immoral for other things to be called gods, why did the Father call other things gods? And so if it's not wrong, why is it wrong for me to do so? That's kind of the argument he makes. It's actually a really savvy move. I actually appreciate that a lot. Um, but again, like he continues to like bring it back to the work of God. And this brings us to point number five, the final one for today, which is we are responsible for what we know. We are responsible for what we know. Jesus says, look, if you don't believe me, go believe the works. Believe what your eyes have seen. 
You've all witnessed the miracles. You've all heard about them. You've experienced the goodness. You you may have even eaten the bread that I provided for the 5,000. If you reject what you know to be true, you're only going to continue a life of further blindness, which is true of all of us. We all have times of doubt where we may want to walk away from the faith, but think back to what you have seen. Think about the fellowship that you've had with other Christians. Think about the comfort you've received from trusting God's plan. Think of the times other people, your brothers and sisters, have helped you in your time of need, who have prayed with you, who have brought you a meal or strengthened you. Just like these Jewish leaders had experienced the miracles, right? don't turn back. Even if there's something you can't figure out yet, don't forget that you have tasted and known God to be good. Peter gives a warning in 2 Peter 2 where he says, it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn away from the holy commandment. Because we are held responsible for all of the light that we have. And so here in this text in John, these people had seen and experienced the power of God. They had seen his goodness and they would now be held accountable for what they know and for the goodness that they've seen. And so too shall we. So then, how should you respond to all of this? Uh, The end of the passage gives us the answer. After trying to kill uh, Jesus, the crowd is unable to do so. uh, And it says Jesus is able to escape from the vengeful crowd. And uh, this is also like the second or third time that like people tried to to get him. And then it's it's almost miraculous. I think it is where people, he's just unable to, he just like slips away. He gets away from the crowd. Uh, I have weird thoughts sometimes when reading the Bible and I've always got like MC Hammer like playing in the background as Jesus like escapes from this crew. But uh, as he, he escapes from them, he goes across the Jordan and then many people start coming to where he is. And verse 41 says that many came to him and many believed in him. They came to Jesus and they believed in Jesus. This is the response required from everyone. It's, it is the essence of faith. It's seeing the greatness of who God is and then it's responding appropriately. We've mentioned this several times throughout this series in John, but Think back to the purpose of why John is writing this book. He tells us his purpose in John chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. That's why John wrote the book. That's what he's attempting to convince us of. The the retelling of these events, the recounting of the miracles, the, the expounding on these teachings, all of it is for this purpose that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. This is the response that every single one of us must make. To those who don't know Christ, the question is, what's keeping you from believing, right? Eternal life is being offered to you. Forgiveness of sins is being extended. 
being saved from God's judgment is here, how will you respond? Will you believe, or like the Jewish leaders, will you turn away from what is true? And to those who already say they are Christians, I would offer a similar question to you. You say you believe. Do you really believe? Do you believe that God's work for eternal life starts today? Right? Eternal life isn't something that begins when you die. It begins working now. The life and work of Jesus changes who we are today. It changes our lives here and now on this earth. The life that we will see in heaven is just a continuation of the life we have now. So how is eternal life changing you? Is the work of Christ feeding your spirit today? When you're overwhelmed with the cares and pressures of the world, do you remember what Jesus said about those who follow him, that his sheep will never perish? That they are held in the, in the hands of the Father and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand? Do you rest in that security? Knowing that no one can undo it. You can rest in God's sovereignty and his plan for your life. And I love the verse we sang earlier in Christ alone. There's a line in there where it says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. So on the days when faith feels weak or when you're distressed or you feel like quitting, I would encourage you to remember that your soul and your destiny are in the hands of him from whom no one can steal a thing. So do you hear the voice of the shepherd this morning? And are you following it? Are you one of his sheep? Are you willing to trust in the plans that he has for your life? If not, today is the day that that can change. I'm not going to stand up here and promise that you're going to hear the audible voice of God today. I don't think we're promised that, but... God has already spoken to us, and we have read it. We have read his word. His will is revealed in the Bible. We see his character. We see his intent, because we have seen God himself in the person of Jesus. The world may tell you to not be a sheep, but in this case, I would disagree, because it's only the sheep that will hear and follow the voice of the shepherd. So I ask you to pray with me now. Great God in heaven, uh, we thank you that you are a good shepherd. A good shepherd who's never lost one of his sheep. A shepherd who, who cares for us and who feeds us, who protects us. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you didn't leave us uh, on our own, but that you showed us the way of truth, even being willing to give up your own life uh, to save uh, the sheep that follow you. Lord, as we've sought to understand your word and your work this morning, we uh, pray continually just for your help to not only know what you've called us to do, but also to, to live as though it's true, because it is. Lord, let us live a life that is honoring to the Father. Let us use our speech and actions to give glory to the Son. And let us rely on the Spirit's help to be salt and light to the world around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go and ask. You're listening to audio from Pillar Church of Jacksonville, where our goal is to know Jesus and to make him known. If you have questions or want to know more about us, you can text Pillar to 94000 or visit our website at pillarjacks.com.